Okay, we are uh, still in Deuteronomy chapter 1. If you don't have yet a yellow, one of these yellow cardstocks, I basically will be touching this every sermon that I preach until we're finished with Deuteronomy, just to highlight for you exactly what's happening in this, this document, in this book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, which is believed by many. Indeed, I think most people now would agree that this is a kind of covenant renewal document, a Caesarian covenant treaty document. If you'd look now at the, the front of this card, we see that the outline is, is actually fairly simple. Like most of these Caesarian covenant treaty documents, the first part of the document is just an introduction of the sovereign. This is to show the might and power and grandeur of the sovereign who's making the covenant, the greater Lord uh, as compared to the lesser Lord or subjects. And that's what we see in Deuteronomy 1, 1 through 8. And then from the end of the, the preamble, the prologue just shows the history of the sovereign with all of his subjects, if you will, with the lower Lord's and that's what is happening right now, Deuteronomy 1, 9 through 4, 43. And that's before we get into the stipulations of the covenant, which are just the expectations of each party of the covenant, which are just an exposition of the Ten Commandments. Those are the stipulations. And then he finishes like all these treaty documents with blessings and curses for keeping or breaking the covenant, how this will be maintained and then an oath of allegiance, followed by witnesses of the covenant. So where are we today? We're still in the prologue. We're talking, this is the Lord talking about his history, his history with his subjects, his history with this people. The setting is just prior to entering the promised land. So for 40 years, they've been wandering and it's been 40 years since Moses on Mount Sinai received the covenant. So he's, he's renewing this covenant with this new generation because remember, all of the old people are dead. Only their children are still alive, except for Caleb and Joshua. So the purpose was to remind this new generation of who God is. They're about to enter covenant with this man, this God, excuse me. They need to know who he is and remember all that he's done. So I'm going to read verses 19 through 33. Um, 19 through 33. Please remain seated. But hear God's word. <clears throat> then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, Let us send men before us, that they may explore the land for us. 
and bring us word again of the way by which we may go up to the cities which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, so I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us, that you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and then the cloud by day to show you what way you should go. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we read these words, how easy it is to think that these people were slow and ignorant without seeing our own lives in this narrative as well. Lord, we know that we need faith to hear and to understand and to believe, to take this word and make it fruitful. Lord, this is a work that only you can do. We pray in Jesus' name that your word would not return void. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So it was Israel's duty to trust in God. It's also our duty to trust in God. Israelites failed to trust him again and again and again, despite his faithfulness and his greatness. And eventually we know they reap the consequences for their unbelief. It seemed like they learned the lessons of their fathers. They were as rebellious and faithless in many respects. And yet they also, as we will see as we go through Deuteronomy, they did believe and they did go into the promised land, although in the end we know they were destroyed. Trust. There, there are things that are required for trust. If you think of people that you work with or you deal with, and what does it mean to trust? Uh, whenever, whenever we would move to a new place, you, you always want to have open arms and you always want to make friends, and especially in a new position of authority. Uh, you want to trust people. But one of the first things that you always do is you go back through the performance reports of all of those people who work for you, and you try to get an understanding of who they are. Can I trust this man? Can I trust this person? Do they have a history of faithfulness? So that's only the first part. The second part is you actually pursue them and you get to know them. You want to understand their character. Are they trustworthy? 
Are they are they people who are easily um, trying to please or quick to lie or uh, too proud to admit a mistake or all of these things? You have to take it all in because you need to know what what is going to happen when I give this person a command or an order. It made me think of our of the history, the 20th century history of World War II. The leaders in England were so desirous of peace that they did not look at the character of the man who opposed them. And they did not look at any of his history. I'm speaking of Hitler, of course. When he rose to power, he told France and England, I'm just going to make this treaty with Austria. It's okay. I don't want any more than Austria. And they kind of ignored the whole situation. And he took Austria. Then he said, I just need a little bit of the Sudetenland. It's Western Czech Republic, Western Czechoslovakia at the time. It's a German-speaking place. These are German people. They need me. I just, I just need to take this. Then I'll be finished. And Chamberlain who was the Prime Minister of England, flew to Munich. They wrote up the Munich Agreement and they gave, France and England gave another country's sovereign territory away. They gave Czechoslovakia's territory away without reference to Czechoslovakia at all. They gave the Sudetenland to Hitler. He famously, Chamberlain famously came back holding this piece of paper, the Munich Agreement, and said, I've secured peace in our time. And of course, now it's a statement that goes down in infamy because he had been absolutely duped. The character of Adolf Hitler was horrible. His history of faithfulness was horrible. And within a few weeks of taking the Sudetenland, Hitler was standing, maybe it was a few months, but he was standing in Prague. He was the ruler of all of Czechoslovakia. Well, then Chamberlain was thrown out of power and Winston Churchill was risen to power. And very quickly, the Germans invaded all of France and they, they took over France. And the French Navy was a large and powerful navy almost as large as England's. And if the Navy fell into the Germans' hands, it could be disastrous for England. And Hitler was still unsure if he would be in war with England. They still had diplomatic relations of some kind through various embassies. They communicated and he told Churchill that he was only going to use the French Navy for domestic purposes, coastal defense. Well, Churchill, of course, knew the character of the man and knew the history of his faithfulness. He was not to be trusted. And he sent the British Navy to destroy the French Navy or to, take, or to capture it, which they did. They destroyed the French Navy or they captured it and used it for their own. So here we have two examples of trusting or not trusting, of analyzing or not analyzing the character and the faithfulness of the person who's making the claims. All this 
just goes to the point of showing that God is one who is perfectly faithful and can be trusted in all things. And he has a history of faithfulness. And this is what he's telling the Israelites. Trust me. Trust me. It's what he says to us as well. Let's look at verse 19. He says, we sent out, set out from Horeb and went through the great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord commanded us. We came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, this is Moses, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. They left Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. It's a 14-day journey. I actually got on Google Maps just to see how long it takes to walk from western Saudi Arabia up to where they're going, Kadesh Barnea. And the walk was about 90 hours, which translates to about 14 days of walking, depending on how fast you walk. And Moses encourages them that they were following God's command to go there. Now he's referencing the original generation. The original generation, he's telling their story. He said, just after Horeb, they went all the way up there. And Moses reminded them, remember, the Lord your God is giving this land to you. So remember, just a few months before that had been the original Passover. They had seen all of God's mighty works in Egypt. They had seen the parting of the Red Sea very recently. They had seen the fire come down on the mountain very recently and received the Ten Commandments from God. And this is all very recent. And then they walked 14 days to the land of Canaan. And he says, God has promised to give you this land. You would think they would see all of those things and go, yes, we're walking straight ahead. God has promised to give this people to us. And it goes much farther back than even Abraham. God would show his people that Canaan would serve them. The land of Canaan was theirs. If you remember Genesis chapter 9, years ago, when we went through Genesis. This is after Noah had gotten drunk. Verse 22 says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his brothers. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew his youngest son, what his youngest son had done to him, he said, remember it was Ham who did this, but he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. So the Lord had ordained that Shem and the Jews come from Shem, the Hebrews come from Shem. They would rule over Canaan. They were about to enter the land of Canaan. The point is the the word and the faithfulness of God was such that they should not have doubted at all. And he had led them through the, the great and terrifying wilderness. And yet they did not take possession of the land. But Moses wasn't finished. In verse 21, he says, See, the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, has set the land before you. Now go up and take possession as the Lord 
the God of your fathers has told you, go up. And in Hebrew, this is a word that always has kind of a positive meaning, to go up, to go up and do something good, do something mighty, to go up. As opposed to, I think the most, uh, the best example of the word go down is seen in Jonah. If you remember in Jonah, he went down into the boat and then he went down into the fish. Always Jonah is going down. He's going down and down and down, farther and farther from God. So to go down is a very negative connotation in Hebrew. But go up is a positive thing. This is go up and take possession. The Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you this. That phrase, the Lord Yahweh, the God of your fathers, is an allusion to the covenant made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's giving them every reason to trust his word. He says, remember this covenant. And he told Abraham specifically what would happen in Genesis chapter 15. Verse 13, he says to Abraham, this is the Lord talking. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve. That's Egypt. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This is what had happened. They had every reason to trust God's word. It had been 400 years. They came out with great possessions. At this time, they still had those great possessions. It had only been a few months since they had left Egypt. With the wealth of Egypt. And now God tells them, go up and take possession. And then he says, do not fear or be dismayed. This is an encouragement that God always gives his people. We see that our lives are also full of difficulties. And God says to us, as he said to his own people at this time, do not fear or be dismayed. That phrase is actually kind of a bookend of Deuteronomy. It's here in chapter 1 and then in chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, verse 7. Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn their fathers to give them. You shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And then again in Joshua 1.9, as Joshua enters the promised land with the armies of Israel, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you are going. This is God's promise for them. It's God's promise for us. Brothers and sisters, do not fear, do not be dismayed. When facing the troubles or the difficulties of this life, our initial response is usually fear or dismay. This is, uh, I know some of you read Matthew Henry's daily prayer. I get a little email with a daily prayer. It's just scripture, scripture prayers. And the one today is a prayer that we would know our fretfulness and impatience and murmuring under our afflictions and our inordinate dejection and distrust of God and his providence. 
I thought, that's part of the sermon. Here's the prayer from Jeremiah and Proverbs and Second Chronicles and Psalms and Isaiah. Lord, when you have disciplined me and I was disciplined, I have been like an untrained calf. And though my own folly has brought my way to ruin, yet my heart has raged against the Lord. And thus in my distress, I have become yet more faithless to the Lord. I have either despised the Lord's discipline or been weary of his reproof. And if I faint in the day of adversity, my strength is small. I've said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight, and the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. As if God would never again be favorable, as if he had forgotten to be gracious and had in his anger shut up his compassion. Lord, this has been my infirmity. Well, these people had not even yet really experienced much affliction. God had protected them all the way until the promised land. He protected them through the wilderness. And their initial response was fear and dismay, so is ours. But troubles were actually important for their lives. It brings clarity to our lives as Christians. Troubles cause us to see God and seek God. Hardship brings the Word of God and the character of God into clear focus. And it's in these times that our hearts turn to him for comfort and hope. We trust him. For the Holy Spirit to use the word of God in your life, in your soul. You must be in the word daily. You must be aware of his promises. You must know the word of God intimately. You must be reading your Bible and studying the scriptures. You remember in Joshua 1.9 where he says to Joshua, be strong and courageous, do not be terrified or dismayed. Here's the verse right before that. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. You see, the law of God and meditating on the law of God day and night is absolutely tied to being strong and courageous, to trusting God. Turn your hearts to the Lord every day in communion with God and His Word. If you try or claim to serve God without His Word, you're just being foolish and presumptuous. How can you be strong in the Lord and in His Word if you never read His Word? If you never turn to Him in prayer? When the day of trouble comes, you should not be surprised. You should trust God. The troubles of the Israelites seemed to have really surprised them. He thought, maybe they thought that God had brought them out to a life of ease and pleasure and all they had to do was walk in and take it. But you see that they had to fight. They had to fight as they entered the land of Canaan, the promised land. So I want to just go through Psalm 77 quickly with you as you think to yourself, I want to trust God like that. I want to pray like that. I want to be that person who turns to God instead of trying to fix everything in my own life myself. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 77? The perfect example of what it means to trust God in this way. David, of course, knew 
The sons of Asaph, of course, knew. Actually, this is Asaph. He knew of the history of Israel. He's facing great distress, as I know many of you are as well. And when you wonder how to pray in these times, you should go to the Psalms. You should look at the Psalms. In the Psalms, we find prayers, we find comfort, we find the Word of God. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Salah. He's saying he's so distressed that when he turns to God in prayer, even that he finds to be distressing. He cannot pray. He's seeking the Lord, but he seems like it's not working. He's remembering God, but he's moaning and his spirit is fainting. Then he says in verse four, you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. So he can't sleep. He's so distressed he can't sleep. I know many of you are often in this position where you're so distressed you just can't sleep. Sleep flees from you. You should do what Asaph did. You should meditate on God in this time. You should pray to the Lord. So his spirit made a diligent search as he laid on his bed. Verse 7, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has, any, has he in anger shut up his compassion? So he's despairing. He's asking these questions to God. Is this what's happening? And then he said in verse 10, I will appeal to this. The years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. will ponder your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. He's going to think back at all God has done in his life. And he's going to ponder on that. And he's going to take encouragement from God's faithfulness in his life. He's not going to think about the discouragement of his situation. He's going to think about the greatness and faithfulness of his God. He says in verse 13, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? So it's not just his faithfulness. It's His attributes, His holiness. He's good, He's holy, He's wise, He's great. You are the God who works great wonders. You have made known Your might among the peoples. And with Your arm redeemed Your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw You, O God, when the waters saw You, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of Your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. 
There are so many places in the scriptures where you see this kind of attitude of prayer, this, this attitude of pouring out your heart to God and then trusting him based on his faithfulness and his character. Moses is telling the people the same thing. God is faithful to you. He has been faithful to you. You need to trust him. But it's it's not a blind trust either. Look at what he says in verse 22. They all came to him. They said, let us send men before us that we may explore the land for us and bring us word of the way by which we must go up to the cities in which we shall come. And the thing seemed good to me. And I took 12 men in numbers we read that God commanded it as well. But the thing seemed good to me and I took 12 men, one from each tribe, and they turned up. They went up into the hill country. Again, they went up. This is a good thing. Into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. So these are like the Navy SEALs of Israel. This is what SEALs do. They do intel. Most of us think, well, Navy SEALs, they go and assassinate bad guys or whatever. That's not their primary job. It's to get deep behind enemy lines and get good intel. And send it back. These guys must have been so excited to be chosen for this thing, this very important mission to infiltrate this promised land and to spy it out. I like it because it it shows that God remembers that we are dust. He doesn't just say, trust me, remember my faithfulness, remember who I am, and just trust me. He remembers that we're dust. You need to see this thing that you're about to do. That's fine. Go see it. I want you to know exactly what I'm going to do for you. Go look. He demands trust, but he makes allowances for our weakness. I love that. He allows for our human reasoning to be encouraged by his providence. So these men went into the land and what happened? They came back in verse 25 and they said, it's a good land that the Lord is giving us. It's very fruitful. But then something happened. In verse 26, they rebelled against the command of the Lord. They murmured in their tents. They said, because the Lord hated us, He brought us out of Egypt to give us the land of the Amorite into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. They're greater and taller than us. The cities are great and fortified to heaven. We've seen the sons of the Anakim there. Again, I think it's easy to point fingers at these people and say, ah, they're just so... They're so cowardly. The reality is their rebellion is just like our rebellion in so many ways. It's a different wilderness, maybe. Different giants, different situation. But we still serve a faithful God and we still do not trust Him often. However, this was their inheritance and they had to fight to get it. It really was a scary thing. The cities were truly great. There were real giants there. Archaeology has shown there is giantism in that region. These were big men. They had to go fight. But the point is the task was, was going to be difficult, just like the wilderness journey was difficult. It was going to be difficult. But yet God says, don't be afraid. Trust me. Trust me. He showed them exactly what they had to do. They had to count the cost. But the courage that was required did not materialize. Why? There was no faith mixed in it. 
Dr. Doug Kelly says that faith for these people, for all of us, really, faith is like the yeast that's mixed into the bread. If you don't mix the yeast into the bread, it's not going to rise. It's not going to be full. It's going to be flat. There was no faith. God had not given them faith. They didn't desire faith. Except Joshua and Caleb. Two out of twelve. Two out of twelve. And then they all perished in the wilderness. Two out of thousands. The ratio of true faith to false faith will always be very small, as Jesus said. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It's always sobering to think that out of all the hundreds of thousands of people who left Egypt, saw all that God had done, two entered the promised land. Counting Moses and Aaron, who knows? How many had true faith in all of the nation of Israel? We don't know. It was a small number. But how did their rebellion and disbelief start? Well, verse 27, we read that they murmured in their tents. So it's not that they were going out into the church and saying, God is leading us into destruction. It was murmuring in their tents. It was this little thing with their families. Murmuring about the situation. Murmuring about Moses. Murmuring about Aaron. The grumbling against Moses and Aaron, by the way, is all through Exodus and Numbers. And against God. It was all against God. That's what Moses told them. He said, you're murmuring against me. It's the Lord. This this Hebrew word to murmur is like a, a secret whisper. A secret slanderous whisper. That's what they're doing against God. They're doubting the Lord. Then they said, the Lord hates us and He brought us out of the land of Egypt. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3. As we read verses 4 and 5. This is when Satan tempted Adam and Eve. Genesis 3. Verses 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Doubting God's word, doubting God's goodness, doubting God's care. It's exactly the same temptation the Israelites face. The Lord hated us. He's not good. He's brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites. Doubting His goodness. To destroy us. Doubting His care. It's the God who loved them. See the great irony? This is God who loved them, who showed His mighty power, brought them out with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, saved them from the army of Egypt, brought them all the way to the promised land because He loved them. He nursed them, if you will. He held them up as a child and they murmured against Him. We need to guard ourselves against murmuring about our situations, even in our hearts, in our homes. Murmuring and grumbling is one of the worst of all sins for the Israelites. It shows a distrust of God. Yes, it's okay to pray to God, to tell God, I don't understand this. I'm suffering here. I don't see why this hasn't changed yet. 
That's different than murmuring in your homes, in your tents, isn't it? It's different than grumbling. When you feel tempted to that, turn it into prayer. Doubting God's goodness and his promises. It's not just Adam and Eve. It's not just Israelites. It's us. Satan lies to you as well. Your situation is horrible. God hates you. He's doing this because he hates you. He's not good to you. He doesn't love you. These are lies. God's holding out on you. He wants you to suffer. He wants you to suffer because he hates you. You're not good enough. And yet God, he still calls these people. Just as he still calls us. I want to conclude by looking at verse 29 and 30. He says, Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. Do not be in dread or afraid of them. Why? Verse 30, because the Lord God who goes before you will himself fight for you. He says this a number of times throughout Deuteronomy. It is the Lord, this is chapter 31, verse 6. It's the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. The first reason is, he goes before you. He will fight you for you. You're his own people. He has adopted you. He's brought you to himself. Yes, trials are coming. Hardships coming. You're in the wilderness and you're about to fight to take the promised land. But God will fight for you. It's a good shepherd. He's a shepherd that carries a rod and a staff. And he'll use the rod against your enemies. But he continues, just as he did before your eyes, Sorry, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness. The second reason why we should not be in dread or afraid of them is because he has a history, a trusted history of faithfulness in our lives. We can look back at our lives and see that. Thirdly, where you have seen the Lord your God has carried you as a man carries his son. All the way that you went until you came to this place. The Lord your God has carried you. As a man carries a son, you are his own children. Saints, you belong to God. He's adopted you. He carries you during times of difficulty. Metaphorically, Moses wants them to know that God had carried you as a man carries his son all the way till now. And this is true for us as well. Verse 33, he went before you in the way to seek out a place to pitch your tents in the fire by night and the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. He's always with the people in the fire by night and the cloud by day. And now his spirit also is always with us. I know some of you might be tempted to think, oh, that must have been so nice to have the actual cloud, the actual fire showing them everything they needed to, to see and to do and every place they needed to go. must have been so simple. Well, obviously it didn't help too much. These were rebellious people. We have the much greater gift. 1 Corinthians 3 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Look also at 2 Timothy 1.14. 
by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The Holy Spirit dwells within you, and he will help guard the good deposit entrusted in you. One last scripture, Ephesians 3, verse 17. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's what trust looks like. It's knowledge, an acknowledgement that the Holy Spirit lives in you, that God will do more than we could ever ask him to do because he's good. So we also need to remember the promise. We need to remember our heritage, that we are his children. We need to remember God's faithfulness. We need to remember God's love for us, that he carries us as a child. We need to remember God's presence among us, as did the Israelites. And then we need to determine that we will not be like them and disbelieve and murmur and grumble and rebel against God. We need to trust him afresh today. Remember, it's God's promise that if you confess your sins, if you repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ, if you trust in the Lord with all of your hearts, then he will care for you. He will bless you. He'll save you for himself and protect you. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord God, that you are truly a good God, a good shepherd, wise and holy and just. You are one who can be trusted. So we turn our hearts to you. We incline our hearts to trust you. We know that we are feeble in our faith and our prayers are weak. We pray that you would help us to trust you. You would help us to rely on you. Even in the most difficult situations in the darkest valleys, that we would trust you, Lord. That you would be faithful to us. We pray this in Jesus' name.